我是台湾人，台湾人，台湾人。Welcome to Taiwan Yuan, where you'll hear stories of Taiwanese innovators, makers, and advocates. I'm your host Cindy, and today we're meeting with Joey Chung of the News Lens. The News Lens is a digital media company that provides independent reporting and voices on matters across all of Asia. Joey shares what it's like to run a media company, how media consumption continues to change, and why Taiwan, in particular, is a strategic place to invest in this kind of business. Let's get into it. Hi Joey, tell us about yourself and your connection to Taiwan. Sure.、Um, so I was born in Taiwan.、Um, uh, I went to the U.S. when I was two years old. My parents went there for their grad school and PhD.、Um, so you're, you're, I guess, your stereotypical kind of you know first generation Taiwan、uh, immigrant story. You know, 30 years ago.、Um, mm-hmm. So I went there when I was two. I、uh, spent three years in Louisiana, five years in Mississippi,、uh, a year and a half、uh, in Michigan. Where my parents did their master's, PhD, and postdoc. We were supposed to stay in the U.S.,、um, but very suddenly, because of family issues,、uh, when I was like eleven or twelve, we moved back to Taiwan.、Um, originally, my promise, my parents promised to send me to American school, since、uh, I couldn't really、uh, read or speak or, or write Chinese.、Uh-huh. Um, uh, but Um, they had been away from Taiwan for over ten years by then, so they had no idea how expensive American school was. <laughs>、um, so yeah, as soon as they got back, they checked. They were horrified and realized they couldn't afford it, and they sent me to a usual Taiwan school, which in a few years was your high school entrance exam and a college entrance exam. It was a horrible experience to、oh, uh, uh, to cram everything together.、Um, so I guess the lesson of the first question is to never trust your parents. <laughs>、uh, oh、they、God. have no idea. They have no idea what they're doing.、Um, so anyway, I mean, it's, it's it's simply you have no choice. So yeah, I, I got plucked into a usual Taiwan elementary school,、um, and a few years after that, you know, you had to quickly learn Chinese, take the exams, high school entrance exam, high school、uh, college entrance exam, college. So I did middle school, high school, and college in Taiwan.、Um, and since I also still have my Taiwan passport,、um, I went to the army here in Taiwan too.、Mm-hmm. At that time, it was still twenty months. <laughs> um, so I graduated、uh, in June. Yeah, I know. I, I, I seem to have had the most American of experiences.、Um, I grew up in the Deep South, where I was the only like Chinese or only Asian.、Uh, and then I got the reverse as well,、yeah. where I, I, I went through the most extreme of Taiwan experiences. So I did middle school, high school, college, military service in Taiwan.、Um, I applied to business school when I was in the army. So I applied relatively early.、Um, I applied when I was in、uh, in the army. I got accepted to business school、uh, the week I got discharged from the army,、um, and then、uh, school is going to start that summer in August.、Um, I got discharged in January. There is a few months in between.、Um, UBS uh, Taiwan, uh, the investment bank, was hiring,、um, so I applied and worked for a few months at the equity research department there. Uh, that was my first crash course、uh, into into business, I guess. And then I went back to the U.S. for grad school. Uh, interned in New York, worked in San Francisco, worked in LA. My last company sent me to Shanghai for two years, so I did two years in Shanghai,、um, and then I quit uh, at the uh, end of O thirteen、um, and moved back to Taiwan to start this company. And the company is about seven and a half years old now. So yeah, kind of everywhere, running running around, if you will. 
I don't say this often, I promise, but your life could be a movie. <laughs> there was lots of thrills in there. Um, wow. And of course, you survived. The, wow. I'm sorry. I'm just thinking about how I can't do local school. <laughs> Props to you for that. Um, we're here to talk about the News Lens, which is a company you helped co-found um, and start here in Taiwan. Can you tell us about what it is and why did you start it in Taiwan? Sure. Um, so the original ideal was um, we wanted to start a digital, uh, a digital native uh, media company that ideally wanted to solve the problems that we saw. Everyone knows uh, from a Taiwan or Greater China, you know, media standpoint, where the media companies here are either extremely biased, extremely uh, politically, you know, polarizing, mm-hmm. um, or they have some sort of a corporate agenda. Um, or they're very, very sensational and very, very junky, right? I remember uh, the the week we started the company, the headline news for one of the largest newspaper groups in Taiwan was literally um, front page, uh, Japanese porn star arrives in Taipei. Um, and it would be, you know, her pictures, her previous works, her measurements. And that was the headline news for the largest newspaper group in Taiwan. And that says something about your society or your, or, or your, you know, your, your civil maturity. And that's, uh, that's, yeah. that's, that's very troublesome uh, for Taiwan in itself. So anyway, the ideal, the, the romanticized ideal was when we started the company, there was only um, two or three people. So uh, instead of you know, young people complaining about it every day and pointing mm-hmm. figure, fingers and blaming other people, why don't we set out to create a ideally objective, rational, calm, uh, more progressive, uh, uh, clean, independent, independent uh, serious news company that was digital first and was hopefully trying to ride that wave of digital transformation from print to online uh, seven years ago. So yeah, that's the original ideal. Uh, a bunch of young people, late 20s, early 30s, trying to set out to create tomorrow's digital media group for mm-hmm. the digital generation instead of complaining about it every day. Yeah. And you kept emphasizing that it's the romanticized idea. So um, seems like there were maybe surprises along the way. So how did it turn out and what were the biggest challenges? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, you, you, everyone starts a company with a romanticized ideal, right? I mean, uh, my, yeah. my example always is, you know, it's, it's important to have dreams, but dreams are for, you know, when you go home right before you go to sleep and you're having a drink and, and you're dreaming about a better tomorrow, that's, that's the romanticized ideal. But when you wake up in the morning, every morning, you have to prepare like you're going to war, mm-hmm. you know, how do you balance the harsh realities, finding fundraising, making the business model work, uh, and to make sure that the dream continues. So it's almost like you have to make sure the dream um, continues every day, but you have to be very, very cognizant on how you find uh, the balance to make sure there's food on the table to actually pursue the dream tomorrow. So there always needs to be that 50-50 balance. And for independent media, uh, it's incredibly, incredibly tricky in that if you're trying to be independent, no political agenda, no corporate bias, uh, then everything from you know who you choose as your staff, who you choose as your investors, uh, where you say yes to or no to in terms of your interested investors, yeah. um, there are a lot of landmines that you have to be very, very careful about. Um, mm-hmm. If you choose the wrong investor, if you choose the wrong partner, if you choose the wrong staff, it's easy to be, to be labeled 
and lose that sense of independent uh, uh, image. Um, so I, I guess the best example is um, I'm always joking. Uh, if I ever do another startup, uh, I never want to do independent media again. Uh, joking. But the reason is because, you know, from the person that manages the business side, the operations and the fundraising side, you know, from an entrepreneurship standpoint, my job ideally should be to find the best offer, the best valuation uh, at every round of fundraising. Yes. Um, I'm always joking that in the past seven years, we've probably said no to more investors than we mm -hmm. have said yes to. Uh, <laughs> simply because once you do your research, you'll realize this investor comes from some background or some, mm -hmm. you know, corporate conglomerate or some, you know, political agenda. Um, and the funny thing, the ironic thing is, it's usually the people that have some sort of agenda or interest for them to want to invest in media. They oftentimes give you the best offers. Mm -hmm. They give you the most money for the highest valuations. So my job as an entrepreneur should be to accept the best offers. But at, this, yeah. at the same time, as an independent media uh, person, we oftentimes always say no to the best offers uh, yeah. because they're the ones that might you know, jeopardize your independent media ideal going forward. So there's forever, I think the hardest thing in the past seven years is there is that forever 50-50 balance of how do you make sure the ideal survives. But you need to be very, very careful uh, not to make a mistake that would jeopardize that ideal. And it's very, very tricky. That tricky situation expands from originally just within Taiwan and then it's Taiwan, Hong Kong, greater China, and then mm -hmm. it's you know the global Chinese community. Uh, politically and geographically, it becomes more and more complicated. Right. Wow. Yeah. So you're kind of, you have to keep your compass in check every day. It's a lot of tension for sure. Um, yeah, I would imagine. I don't have kids yet, but I would imagine it's, you know, it's like you're asking me, oh, um, did you imagine all of this when you first had your baby seven years ago and your kid is seven years old now, right? I think any parent, my guess would be, would say, yeah, they had no idea what would happen uh, within those seven years now that your, mm -hmm. your, your son or daughter is going, you know, second or third grade in elementary school. There's no way anyone could have foreseen any of this uh, seven years ago. It's just, you, you just go with the flow, right? Um, you just play with the, uh, the cards that you're dealt with. Every year, something evolves, something changes, something is different. Your kid goes from seven to eight, eight to nine, uh, elementary school to middle school, and you just try to adapt while trying to make sure we don't, I guess, sell our original idealistic soul. Mm -hmm. um, I want to go back to uh, Taiwanese news for a bit because I'm a bit of, I'm an outsider on that. Um, I haven't really spent enough time in Taiwan to see how, what the different options are for news. Um, whereas just me watching my parents, they're still actually um, getting their news from the same three or four channels from Taiwan, but now via YouTube or there's a Taiwan box. Um, and then when I do happen to watch a little bit of it, right, it's always about car accidents to me or a dispute, <laughs> some sort of community dispute. So yeah. I don't know if this is the most accurate representation of a Taiwanese family, but yeah, I'm really curious uh, to get your opinion on where are Taiwanese people getting their news from now and has media consumption changed, in your opinion? Sure. Um, yeah, I think those are two very good examples. Um, when we started the company, um, when I would used to explain ourselves in the early stages to, 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 to uh, new investors or new people, um, it would be our target audience from a narrow standpoint 
are people from, you know, I guess roughly 15 to 50, you know, mm-hmm. people that are used to getting their information from their smartphones. So, you know, if you have subscribed to newsletters or if you download news apps, um, then chances are if you're, if you have a Facebook or Instagram account, you're probably one of our target audiences. Um, if you still wake up at 7 a.m. for, you know, <laughs> right for for the local uh, news channels, um, then chances are you're probably not uh, one of our target audiences. So uh, a more narrow focus is yeah, fifteen to fifty. A more broader focus is as long as you're used to getting uh, information uh, from your smartphone, then you're probably mm-hmm. our target audience. Um, and of course, we've seen that transition happen faster and faster over the past mm-hmm. seven years uh, to the point right now. Uh, to answer your question, um, I think 80% of our traffic comes from mobile. Mm-hmm. Um, so the younger you are, the more digital savvy you are. Uh, it's gotten to the point where in the last few iterations of our website, the uh, UI and UX design, um, it's completely designed now, uh, assuming people are actually going to read it on your cell phone. Mm-hmm. So I remember like six, seven years ago, the key word was, oh, mobile-friendly. Now, mm-hmm. in the past five years, it's all mobile first. Mm-hmm. So we used to get a lot of criticism that why does your w- uh, website look so ugly on the desktop? Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's simply because it's not even designed for the desktop anymore. It's designed for your mobile phone. So, you know, mm-hmm. the sizes, the UI, UX looks different on your mobile phone. So, yeah, to answer your question, I mean, um, yeah, people are definitely much more tech savvy. Even the older generation, our parents' generation, uh, are on Facebook or line every day now, right? Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but TV is still going to be there no matter what, especially as you can see now uh, during the pandemic. But yeah, there, uh, digital is definitely the future. So, and we set out to be digital native or digital first. Um, so that's going to be here to stay for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I personally really enjoyed the CDC doing a Facebook stream with the news conference every day. It's very accessible for people like me. <laughs> um, yeah. So, Speaking of the pandemic, um, I have found that even something that maybe isn't seemingly political has gotten very political very quickly. So I just find that a place like Taiwan and like you were saying, polarizing, right? So whatever news is being reported just seems like there's always some sort of polarizing side to it. Um, How would you advise people to consume or interpret information when they're reading it? Well, I, I, I guess from a most basic standpoint, um, do your research. I think most Taiwanese understand, for example, when you're going to the major TV channels, you know, channels 49 to 55, uh, you kind of understand the context or the history that, oh, this channel is owned by which company uh, mm-hmm. that is a more pro or anti stance, right? So it's the same thing as in the US, you know, where, oh, you know, this is Fox News or you know, this is CNN. So you can immediately have context within the back of your mind uh, to kind of balance the different perspectives. Exact same thing for Taiwan. If you uh, are familiar enough with all the newspapers or all the TV channels or all the uh, the digital platforms, then you kind of roughly have an idea. Most of these uh, existing legacy media companies own which assets. So therefore, uh, to balance uh, their viewpoints with other more diverse viewpoints as well. So don't just watch or read you know, one channel, one website, or one mm-hmm. newspaper. Make sure to balance it out. Uh, I would actually say to take that even further now for the digital generation, uh, it's even more important and potentially even more dangerous in that, uh, you know, uh, in Taiwan, when we talk about social media, it's still more or less 80% Facebook, 
You know, there's no Snapchat here. Very, very few people uh, use Twitter. Uh, it's either Facebook or Instagram, which is, of course, owned by Facebook as well. Um, so it's actually very dangerous for the digital generation where we're all on Facebook, we're all on social media, and chances are we get 50% of our news uh, from social media when people share different things. And um, you know, Facebook, it's, 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 it's important to remember, is a for-profit company. Fundamentally, they're not a news company. They're not a media company. Their biggest interest uh, is to make more money off of you by making sure you stay on the platform for as long as possible. Uh, and the only way to do that, since they indirectly sell you advertisements, is to make sure uh, to give you content that you will stay on to read longer, right? Mm. Um, so, you know, as they capture your big data, as they uh, understand more and more who you are and what you like, they will start feeding you content that, you th- that they think you will want to read more. And after a while, you know, it, it becomes, of course, skewed. So if they know you're left-leaning or right-leaning or blue or green, uh, it's within their absolute interest to give you more and more content that fulfills your version of what you think the world is like. So in many ways, it's even more dangerous because, you know, 20 years ago, I would go on to Fox News or I would go on to Channel 54 and I might already, I, I might know, yeah, you know, Fox News is owned by who or Channel 54 is owned by who. Uh, but there's a whole entire bulk of the young generation that are getting feeded uh, content that is pre-screened uh, for them uh, every day at every moment Images, Mm -hmm. pictures, videos, news, uh, opinions that they have no previous context that uh, it is pre-screened. So after a while, everyone believes that, oh yeah, everyone thinks like me, you know, because Facebook keeps feeding you stuff that it assumes you want to know more about. That's very, very dangerous for the, uh, I guess, the national or the uh, democratic discourse. So yeah, uh, to answer your question, from the digital standpoint, to know that context, and number two, if you really want to follow three or five different news channels or news media, at some point, it's very, very important to go directly uh, to their website and mm-hmm. bypass Facebook, bypass social media. Don't mm-hmm. allow social media as a middleman to screen for you. Go directly to those media uh, outlets themselves so you can directly have a relationship with them and not get your data and your behavior tracked and stolen. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the most important things going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a good point. Proactively seeking out new sources and different new sources at that, um, because the echo chamber it is very real. And like you said, even without artificial intelligence, so even without big data, just your friend groups, right? So people are going to have similar viewpoints, and you're echoing each other. So um, that's basically what's happening all around the world. It's kind of troublesome. Um, what do you think people just don't appreciate enough about journalism or good journalism and reporting? Well, I think, you know, broader strokes, of course, um, uh, I think it's going to be many, many years before the young generation in Taiwan or greater China, um, or, you know, I guess, uh, the Asian territory overall. Uh, will be ready to really pay for content. Mm. I mean, fundamentally, going back to all the topics that we're talking about, you know, um, each business model, especially the media business model, uh, has two ways uh, to survive. Uh, number one is the direct way. So whoever is buying 
uh, or reading your content needs to pay for it, right? Like, like you know, old days, like the newspaper, where they actually paid for the newspaper. Um, and if the end consumer is not paying for the product and the company has to survive, then the only natural second way is to indirectly pay for it through advertising. And that's, I think, what's been kind of destroying or skewing uh, media companies, both internationally in the U.S. and in Taiwan as well, um, where if no one wants to pay for it, then uh, a higher and higher chunk of your revenue to make sure the company survives comes from advertising. Then this creates this huge pressure uh, mm-hmm. to make sure the you know the headlines are more sensational, the content mm-hmm. is more junky, whatever junk content out there to grab eyeballs mm-hmm. and. Uh, fundamentally, uh, you know, uh, in-depth reporting or journalistic investi- investigative journalism that becomes not that important because you might spend a lot of money to do one or two in-depth pieces that have very little page views compared right. to sensational comments, uh, a content, right? Um, so the the going back to all of this, I guess, messiness in Taiwan media situation that we're talking about. Fundamentally, the easiest way to solve this is if every end user actually pays directly for the content. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, uh, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. I think uh, that idea is there, but the awareness uh, that the average Taiwanese need to, need to start paying. And if you want quality, you, you need to start paying. That, I guess that mindset is still stuck. You know, we still want the cheapest deal. You know, we still want, we always still want discounts. You know, we always uh, get in line when Starbucks is doing a buy one, get one free. You know, it's always about how do we get the best deals. Uh, but uh, for society overall as a whole, uh, at some point, if you're always trying to get for the best deals, and that means you know uh, the, the important things that seemingly have less, seemingly have less tangible uh, immediate effects, such as you know media, good content, education, social benefits, that that those priorities go down since we're spending less and less money on its direct investment. Yeah, I think uh, in the long term. Um, I mean, we'll, we'll gradually catch on. We'll, uh, the digital mm-hmm. generation will, gra- will gradually grow up. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember even our company doing this study uh, three or four years ago um, where the, the ceiling for a young uh, person willing to pay for high-quality content per month is not more than 100 NT. Um, so mm-hmm. anything over three digits in Taiwan is considered yeah. too expensive. So, you know, that's 100 NT, basically. So any app, any news content that has a subscription fee of over 100 NT, uh, mm-hmm. we're not going to pay for it. And mm-hmm. if you think about it, 100 NT is like cheaper than the average Starbucks coffee, right? So we're, we're okay to pay for $100 coffee uh, that we will finish in an hour. But yeah, but we want to pay for a month's content. Different, Of course, there are different reasons we're oversimplifying uh, journalizing here. But yeah, I think that's the, the, the biggest uh, mindset that hopefully ideally will change very, very soon. Mm, in the meantime, how is Newslens adapting to that? Or um, the fact that, you know, people's content expectations continue to rise. <laughs> they want great content still, better every, every year. More instant because of things like, you know, TikTok and just constantly instant updates. And obviously, they, of, of course, they want accurate content. So the expectations just keep rising for you. But yeah, the willingness to pay isn't there yet. So how are you taking that on or um, responding to it? Well, so 
Yeah, I mean, hopefully that will change in the next five or ten years. But uh, don't definitely don't base your entire business model on that assumption. So uh, for the time being, of course, besides advertising, we're also starting to naturally evolve into other complementary services: mm-hmm. uh, Martech, AdTech, uh, mm-hmm. AI, customer data tech. Um, so I mean, I personally think, looking back at the past seven years, there are probably three different stages uh, in the company's growth. So the first stage, the first one third, was when TNL started with one brand. It was serious news. It was trying to be objective, calm, and rational as as, as best as possible, and that became uh, big enough uh, for us to enter into the second stage. Whereas to achieve scale, to truly achieve enough revenue uh, and aim for profitability as quickly mm-hmm. as possible, uh, we started acquiring other smaller verticals. So uh, we acquired, you know, tech. Uh, verticals, mm-hmm. uh, business verticals, lifestyle verticals, sports verticals, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we became a media group. So stage two was how to trans- transition from a large independent news media to being a large independent media group. Uh, and with that, with scale, then you're able to build up your sales team. You're able to build up your your advertorial team, your video team, your data team. Uh, hold more events, negotiate better deals, achieve more profit uh, scale. And the final stage that we just entered into about a year and a half ago is we're starting to build out complementary, uh, you know, tech services, data services, market research uh, that ideally goes hand in hand with the readership that we have. But their products, uh, when we sell them, uh, are not does not create a pressure uh, to create you know more page views or interfere with the editorial independence. So they're more complementary. They're mm-hmm. complementary in that they grow hand in hand, but they don't interfere with the integrity uh, with the integrity of independent media. That's stage three. So to quickly diversify away from just yeah. relying on traditional advertising, uh, that's that, that's the third stage. It's still uh, very very challenging. Every time there's a COVID crisis, you know, something external happens. You know, uh, it throws a wrench into everything. Advertising goes down, events disappear. You know, uh, behaviors change. So yeah, every day is definitely a, a challenge and struggle to survive. But at least compared to two years ago, you're not solely dependent on just mm-hmm. advertising. So yeah. hopefully you diversify and you'll be safer in the long run. Yeah, you weren't kidding. You wake up and go to war every day. <laughs> That's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. Yeah, well, I mean, after seven years, I think I always have a very dry or cynical reaction <laughs> where it's like, yeah, well, I mean, do I have a choice? You know, it's like saying, oh, yeah, you're exhausted after having a kid that's now seven years old and rebelling every, uh, rebellious mm-hmm. every, every day. And I guess my dry reaction will be, and so what? You know, I mean, it is what it is, right? It's like your, your baby is born. Uh, the kid is going to elementary school right now. What am I going to do? You know, uh, I, I can't go back. You can only go forward. Um, you, you make sure your baby, your kid, reaches its full potential, hits 18, goes to college, <laughs> uh, is independent. Uh, yeah. There's this plaque uh, in one of our offices that I actually wrote. Uh, and I, I, To this day, I still fully believe in it. Uh, the, um, the wording says, uh, independent media is not truly going to be independent until it self-sustains. Mm-hmm. So just like a baby going from baby to you know year three or seven, year 18, when mm-hmm. it you know goes to college or earns enough money to actually fend for itself, uh, you know, our job is to make sure independent media can self-sustain as fast as possible without relying on, you know, a very narrow source of advertising or just outside investors, but is actually able to feed itself. 
that's when it's fully, fully very, very safe. Mm-hmm. So you've talked a lot about maybe a lot of potential crises or obstacles you face. So I wonder, though, was there a moment in the seven-year journey, a specific moment that made you sort of stop and think, okay, this makes it all worth it? I hope there's a moment <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean, I guess when you see the company grow, um, and every time you're in a pickle or you're stuck or there's some sort of external crisis that might create an internal crisis, um, and you know, going through lots of ups and downs, uh, at the end of the day, a random stranger or a new investor or an existing investor, someone comes in to help you. Um, mm-hmm. There are those moments. I mean, uh, strictly from a personal standpoint. I feel like I've seen a lot and I've grown uh, much more than I originally thought I would have in the past mm-hmm. seven years. Again, I imagine it's the same thing if you ask a, a parent who has a seven-year-old kid, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's exhausting. You're tired. Uh, you never imagine this stuff. But at the same time, you grow as a person, as an adult, mm-hmm. because you have a kid. I would imagine it's very, very similar. Um, and you know the, the experiences that you have, the people that you meet, uh, it's completely different than uh, how I ever imagined it seven years ago. Um, and once you see all the elements come together at every important milestone or juncture, mm-hmm. I never would have imagined that, yeah, we would have done you know, six acquisitions in two and a half years. I never would have imagined that we have a now uh, a total headcount of 220 people. You know, wow. I never imagined that we would have four offices scattered across greater China. Um, 99% of the time during the day, you don't stop to think about it. You know, you're just going in, going out, trying to make sure the baby survives, the baby survives, make the right decisions. Don't sacrifice something. Don't make the wrong decisions that uh, sacrifices the original ideals. But when you sometimes, Mm -hmm. you know, take a step back and look at everything. Yeah, of course. It's like, you know, you're proud of your son or daughter when they graduate from elementary school. You're proud when they go to high school. You're proud when they go to college. Yeah, but day to day, it's, it's, it's very much, you know, let's, let's get through the day. Let's get through the week. Let's get through the month. Uh, but yeah, the experiences are definitely enough for a lifetime for sure. Mm. Um, this really is your child. (laughs) So maybe taking a few steps back, um, you did want to start this company for, uh, independent media to exist, but I wonder, are there specific stories you also are hoping to bring forward, um, to Taiwan or just across Asia, just more stories that you think people need to hear. So I guess the first thing that pops up is when we had our first outside investors, the investor group came from a a venture capital fund that was started by the ex-editor-in-chief of the Washington Post. So uh, they were our outside, our our, our earliest outside investor. Uh, They came in during our seed round. And um, I remember uh, when we were about to sign the investment contract, um, he actually flew over from Washington, uh, mm-hmm. stayed, with us for, stayed with us for two days. We negotiated the, uh, the legal details. And that evening, before he's going to fly back uh, the next day, back to the U.S., um, we actually all met up at the uh, Japanese restaurant at the uh, Howard Plaza Hotel in Taipei, Fuhua Fandian, uh, first floor restaurant uh, in Taipei. And I remember, you know, after dinner, the lawyer brings over the contracts to sign. And I remember watching him sign the 20 pages of the contract for like five minutes. And uh, after he's done, I think, okay, 
you're, you're done signing the contract. It's uh, too late for you to regret it now. Um, I just kind of asked him like point blank, you know, why did you guys invest in us? At that time, we were six months old. We were six months old. We had a full-time staff, about five people. Mm. Um, our office at that time was like slightly bigger than my office right now. It's like a small mm. corner in a, in a co-working space. Um, and you know, we were tiny, we had about 1 million readers then not small, um, but still the, the, the company in itself was tiny. Um, so yeah, I asked him, you know, why, as far as we know, you know, it, it, it doesn't really happen that often for a large foreign investor group to actually invest in a Taiwan based media mm. group. So he looks at me, you know, like almost like lazily, almost <laughs> ca- like casually looks at me and just kind of shrugs and says, oh, well, you know. Uh, everyone assumes that the global Chinese market going forward will be increasingly important. Everyone also agrees that the uh, you know the uh, Asian market going forward uh, will be more and more uh, important and influential. So let me ask you this: uh, right now, where we are uh, for the global Chinese market, the international Chinese language market, uh, where 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 else can you do independent media now besides Taiwan? Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, if you t- t- take a look back, yeah, it's it's very sad but very true. Yeah, you, you can no longer do media, of course, in China, Hong Kong now because of national security law definitely can't do it. Singapore is traditionally very very uh, hostile towards outside media. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, out of I guess most of the global Chinese uh, communities, Taiwan is now the last safe place uh, for free media. So mm-hmm. I mean, there that message, that spirit, that ideal. To, to be a hopefully fair, objective voice for the global Chinese uh, community, for that identity, is very, very important. Uh, I definitely agree that it needs to be cherished uh, and brought forth. Uh, so, yeah, to answer your question from the long term, yeah, that, that idea that if Taiwan is now the only safe place or one of the very few or only remaining places to do this, then we definitely need to survive. Um, not not everything is owned by you know Alibaba or or, or China or or other conglomerates that have political biases. Uh, we want to be that large, but hopefully very few you know standing uh, independent media groups that is beholden and has no corporate uh, burden or agenda. Uh, I always share the story because on the flip side, I always feel his comment depends on whether or not you're a you know glass half, half empty or half full kind of person mm. from a half. A uh, full person, yes. You know, Taiwan is the last safe place for free media. That's great. Uh, from a uh, more pessimistic standpoint, he's actually hinting at something that uh, I've always felt from a from a harsh reality, from an investor standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, what he's actually hinting at is, I mean, these are very good investors. They're media people themselves. But fundamentally, uh, if we told them from day one, oh yeah, we're setting out to create a Taiwan-based media company that's independent, and we're only going to look at Taiwan. I don't think they would invest. Right. You know, they're interested in greater China. They're interested in the global Chinese market. Taiwan in itself is great, but it's too small. You know, for any outside professional investor, no matter how great the ideals or the business model or the company, uh, romanticized image, whatever, uh, if you tell the earliest investors from day one, you're only going to do Taiwan, it's too small. The chances are they're not going to come in. So again, this goes back to our first question. How do you balance the ideals, the harsh realities uh, of taking investment money, grow as fast as possible, but at some point still understanding that you need to never 
interfere with the integrity of the original ideals of the media part, but make sure your investors that supported you over the past few years eventually at some point still gets their return on investment. Uh, it's, it's, it's fair, 50-50. And that's, I guess, the everyday struggle on, 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 how to, on how to balance that. Yeah. And I mean, that's true of probably every startup in Taiwan. You just need to have that global viewpoint because this market is very small. I agree with that. Um, what is the ultimate impact, maybe if in one sentence, if you can, the ultimate impact you want to create in Taiwan or maybe in Asia? Well, ideally, um, going back to the original ideal, you know, uh, independent mm-hmm. media, and then how we naturally kind of evolved, you know, greater China, global Chinese. Uh, so we now have, you know, a Taiwan edition, Hong Kong edition. We have Southeast Asia editions, international mm-hmm. English editions. Oh, wow. uh, we have six media brands. Um, so ideally, uh, we want to continue that. Uh, and mm-hmm. as we naturally evolve to add more complementary data and tech and MarTech services, um, um, we want to be the first, well, not the first, but I guess we want to be uh, one of the first mm-hmm. uh, of uh, independent content, data, and tech service platforms to go from nothing and hopefully eventually one day be able to IPO. Um, I think uh, before we're able to go public, there's another uh, inherent risk where every time we need to fundraise, you need to go out and fundraise from private sources, right? And again, my experience over the last seven years is uh, when you're both very, very small and when you're both very, very later stage, uh, the investors that chances are have millions, 30 million, 50 million to invest in media around the world. Oftentimes, again, from a greater China standpoint, are exactly the, the, the media investors that you oftentimes have to say no to. Mm-hmm. You know, think about it. Uh, who has so much uh, money lying around uh, that they're able and eager to mm-hmm. invest in media when they're very, very young or when they're very, very later stage and influential. It's oftentimes the investors that have some sort of an agenda that want to own media. Mm-hmm. So it, it's in the long term, it's very, very risky to always be in that game. Uh, if there's a pandemic, if there's a US-China trade war, money dries up, and then you, you, you're, you're down to a very small, narrow pool of investors mm-hmm. who chances are might want to interfere with your image or with the independent media integrity, and then you're screwed. So in the long term, I, I, you know, uh, taking that you know, independent media needs to self-sustain uh, to be truly independent uh, even further, then I want to be one of the few independent medias to actually make it all the way to being public. Because mm-hmm. once you're public, you know, you're publicly listed, your investor base, your shareholders, your board, your, in, your internal controls, everything is public. You know, it's transparent. It's public. You're there. You know, uh, and you don't have to rely on a few investors every eighteen or twenty-four months. You know, you're you, you're finally you found your first job as an adult. You can feed for your, fend for yourself. <laughs> so you are finally independent and transparent for everyone to see and critique. Uh, if it comes to that, um, so to answer your question, yeah, I, I want to see that journey through to that point. Mm-hmm. And once, hopefully, this kind of big, you know, content media digital and tech platform IPOs, we're transparent, uh, there's return for their investors, for our investors, Mm -hmm. and there's a trickle-down effect into the ecosystem where, you know, existing investors, existing staff, uh, existing uh, advisors that own our stock and are able to exit, then can go down and trickle down to the ecosystem and then create, you know, 
their startups, you know, become their investors, become angels, become entrepreneurs, and there will be a whole trickle down effect, uh, hopefully. And we ideally want to do this the whole way without ever, you know, uh, sacrificing the original ideals. If you'd like to follow stories from the Newslands, you can go to their website at thenewslands.com or download their app. Remember to rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. Taiwan Jiao.